0: When I started as an intern at Sotheby's many, many years ago, it was Sai who came in on Saturday morning. Um, the, the galleries were cleared because he came before anyone else came because he actually wanted to see the painting. He didn't want to say hello to anyone. <laughs> he stood in front of paintings that looked. That's like I spent most of the time in my young career watching him watch paintings which was very exciting uh and 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 really passionate and i see it in some of the next generation of collectors doing the same thing this saturday morning coming out looking at paintings and really taking the time i love that this is coming back in a way for certain collectors that this that this true spirit although yes you don't discover them anymore you just come to you know you come to rock center or to york avenue and look there but it's still a discovery
1: Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live Art's look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. S.I. Newhouse Jr. was a titan of the media business in the late 20th century, presiding over Conde Nast, but also owning with his brother, Donald, a publications chain of newspapers and other cable television properties and networks. He was one of the preeminent collectors of post-war and contemporary art. Through the painter Alexander Lieberman, who served as Condé Nast editorial director, he met the abstract expressionist Barnett Newman. Through Newman, he developed an interest in abstract expressionism and color field painting. But Newhouse was also a restless and inquisitive collector, open to pursuing new ideas and making his collection continually. Alex Rotter, chairman of Christie's 2021 Art Department, and Max Carter, a vice chairman, sat down to talk with me about Newhouse as a collector and the important works that are being sold this season. Alex Rotter, Max Carter, thank you for taking the time with me.
0: We're very happy to be here with you. When you ask, we come.
1: The last season was this extraordinary moment in the art market, uh, punctuated by the Paul Allen sale, which drove home one of the key features, which is that extraordinary collectors of extraordinary works are very much at a premium in the art market currently. That's not always the case, but there seems to be a kind of a particular moment. And those things don't come along uh, all too often, though surprisingly I guess we're seeing a generation of people uh, uh, pass, and so we, we are going to see a, a number of collections. Uh, but I thought it was very interesting, the choice of the Newhouse Estate to create a selection of works that kind of perfectly fitted into that moment without... Putting a very large estate on the market, and Cy Newhouse is a, a particularly important collector. Uh, the, the one of the ways to date the current art market is to the um, sale of the Orange Marilyn, which he purchased for seventeen million. Uh, uh, dollars and kind of kicked off the current uh, art market 25 years ago. It's had its ups and downs, but it's mostly been uh, ups. And he's owned an extraordinary uh, number of works, more than a lot of collectors. Though he he has a few peers who were similar. He bought and sold a lot of work over the time. He wasn't wasn't necessarily holding on to everything for for posterity. Uh, and and cycled through some important works. One that I uh, particularly noticed looking at some old pictures of um, his house was that the, uh, the Jackson Pollock uh, black painting that was sold in the Makla sale for a record price had been sitting over a sofa inside Newhouse's house for a number of years. And I gather in, in some ways he bought the Orestes by uh, Willem de Kooning that we're seeing here somewhat as a kind of make-up for having... <laughs> the, the sol- give himself solace for having uh, 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 sold that painting and, and missing it. So I thought uh, uh, first... W- I'd like to hear just sort of your thoughts about both the market and these kinds of collections and how this sort of fits in.
0: So um, I think, you know, obviously your observation You've been doing this for a while. Is completely correct that um, I generally we have we have we have two things happening or more things happening at the same time. But two main main occurrences. One is what you, what you what you said is that um, there's an entire generation, the first generation, and let's you know let's give them a little bit of room. It's not like only five years, but the first generation of. True contemporary post-war collectors are now passing away, dying or, or, or getting, getting up there in age and are in their eighties and their nineties. Um, why they carry so much, I think, for us people working in the art business, but also for the collectors, because you have to imagine these are the the guys and girls that went out there when contemporary art was not popular, when uh, Leo Castelli had to beg you to basically take <laughs> something home when you wouldn't walk into a, if you wouldn't fall over and walk into a gallery, so there, there were handfuls of people that were dedicated that did something that was probably. Not probably we know laughed at or entertained with, and it wasn't it wasn't it 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 wasn't something to do. You definitely they didn't do it to get prestige, they did it for true passion. I think there's something to be said, and I think that if you get a little esoteric, like a painting that's bought with passion carries that a little longer than a painting that's bought for speculation. I truly believe that actually. Um and I think so so this combination of of, of, of the collectors giving up their collectors And as you rightfully say, um, Cy was someone who changed his collection. He changed his entire collection once in the 80s. He had lots of Morris Lewis and Kenneth Nolan and stuff like that. Then he changed. um, But always evolving. And I think this the the older generation of collectors had this also. They, they they obviously had a time where they bought a lot, but they kept looking and they kept buying. And if I think of some of the collectors that are up there from this generation, they're still looking, which is amazing. So there are collectors for fifty years that are still looking at.
1: You guys are selling a George Condo in this group. Well, that so so, so uh, uh, he was buying up to the end. He
0: was buying up to the end, and and that's meaningful. Then combined with, um, you know, and that's also like a relevant thing to say. I think these days, uh, and we saw it coming last year. Um, it's 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 a more difficult situation economically, global, uh, politically, in every kinds of respect. So I do think that the premium that you re- uh, referenced of a collection um, is definitely there. What's the premium? The premium is exactly that. It's like this was bought. 20 30 40 50 years ago not for the idea to outsmart the market but to be really like one of the one of the riders of the apocalypse and like go show the future kind of i think that gives confidence to the new buying uh, to the to the new buying class of people uh, however they are however young old they are but they like this because it gives you a little bit of an extra um, it gives you an extra comfort zone I think when you know this was really a collector's choice who had the choice of all of it and that's also something it's like you know you always say this is the Lichtenstein that he had or this is the Warhol that he had or this is the Johns like again we're not today this is not um, I'm not going to reference any gallery but this is not a gallery it's like you know buy one and give one to the museum and give one to your aunt and uh, but wait because you're number 49 Nobody wanted anything, so these people had really the choice.
1: <laughs> but but even even in that context, Cy Newhouse spent every Saturday he was in New York going to galleries. He was the first, uh, you know, speed dial back when we had speed dials uh, uh, for any important galleries trying to sell so- something. Uh, you know, the, he was in many ways the er client when Larry Gagosian came to New York and established himself through Leo Castelli. I mean, in, in, as figures go. There, there may have been peers, but no one was more central to the art market, certainly in the 80s and 90s, uh, than Cy Newhouse. And you know, we've somewhat lost the um, aura of his name and his uh, empire. But uh, 20, 30 years ago, uh, the Newhouse, not just uh, Condé Nast, the magazine part of it, but they owned Random House and an enormous newspaper and cable network that made them probably the you know biggest names. We, we saw... Works from the Paley Collection uh, sold by Mo- MoMA. Uh, Cynewhouse was is uh, Bill Paley's peer, possibly you know superior in uh, the media firmament. So uh, I th- I think that is part of what people are buying is the knowledge that a man who could have anything and had the patience and longevity in the market to see many things come and go and trade for that, it it meant something that he was buying something he cared about and uh, gives it a a, a different sense of selection in in the market.
0: That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And he was, I remember, um, when I started as an intern at Sotheby's many, many years ago, it was Sai who came in on Saturday morning uh, the the galleries were cleared because he came before anyone else came, because he actually wanted to see the painting. He didn't want to say hello to anyone.
1: Well, and he famously didn't speak to anyone in his entire career. It was like getting five words out of him was a hard thing. He looked,
0: he stood in front of paintings that looked, that's like I spent most of the time in my young career watching him watch paintings. Um, which was, which was, which was very exciting, uh, and, and, and really passionate. And I see it in some of the next generation of collectors doing the same thing. This Saturday morning, coming out, looking at paintings and really taking the time. I love that this is coming back in a way for certain collectors that this, that this true spirit, although yes, you don't discover them anymore. You just come to you know you come to Rock Center or to York Avenue and look there. But it's still a discovery, um, and and that's exciting when you see this from collectors that could do anything they wanted to. Do.
1: You're describing looking a lot more than you actually buy, right? That that to know what you want to buy, you have to have seen a great deal of art, and and that means in museums, it means in galleries, uh, on the primary market, it means in auctions as things pass through the secondary market. But it's real. You know, having a breadth of uh, visual experience to be able to make decisions when you have that, you know, two weeks to decide when something's being offered you, maybe a, a few days when something's being offered you pri- privately uh, to make that uh, decision. Is, is are, are there people who sort of just don't have that luxury, aren't willing to devote the the time to to that? That you know, I guess it's like here's an opportunity, looks like it's some something good. I I'll get my condo, and so I'll...
0: well. Look, I think that that you know and i think all of these approaches are legitimate some are some, some are more friendly to us or more in the spirit of of max and i for instance others are not but um, i think people look in different ways some people have this have this incredible thirst to own so they look to own that's a that's a class of collectors if they collect stamps or um, or of figurines or paintings they see it they want it. It doesn't work if they don't possess it. Then there are the ones that, um, that, that, that look, that look more than they possess because they're okay with looking. Um, and they're the ones which are my favorite that look, look, look and then know exactly when they want to possess, uh, when they want to own because it's like, you know, it's like when you know, you know. <laughs> it's like with people uh, I, I think paintings are much art as much like people so I think the reactions are in a very similar way and when people when people really follow this passion that way that's wonderful for us as auction house or just art lovers to see this, but
2: you—you you, you can tell Mary, from the. I mean, this is a selection of sixteen works. The collection's vast. There are many other things. But if you took someone off the street, and there's still many collectors who look up to New House, who, who for whom he's still the gold standard for. for 20th century collecting. If you took someone who had never heard of him before, and you just looked at these objects through through a fresh lens, for the most part, they're the best of what you're going to find by these artists. Like the 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 Picasso is the best Lee Miller painting he did by by a country mile. The Bacon is probably the most beautiful Bacon self portrait. You know, even the Bontecu. You know, when he when he bought the Bontecu, the record was. $50,000, You paid $450,000 at auction. You talk about making a decision because you know, when you know, you know. And, and that's true for all of the works in the group. It
0: completely is. No, absolutely. He chose very carefully. He knew what he chose. I think it's very interesting. He did regret some things, like your reference about the Pollock. Yeah, yeah. I, this, this makes total sense. But he then got a Pollock as, uh, also. Uh, and he replaced the black and white uh, Pollock with the black and white de Kooning, yeah. which I think is better. (laughs) In this case.
1: (laughs) It's worth pointing out, we discovered uh, uh, a year ago that he had owned the Sage Blue um, Marilyn by Warhol and sold it before he bought the orange one and that's part of how I came to learn that he had this sort of habit of you know selling things and thinking wait I, I kind of missed that and then going back and replacing it in in another form and I I believe that um Pollock black painting is sort of again sort of head and shoulders above the rest of the se- series and so it's not like you're just going to go and get another one uh exactly. to, yeah. to to re- to replace it um so we we brought up the Orestes uh, and the Bontique, both of which I it seems to me are particularly key moments in their uh, markets. Bontique, there are very few works that come, but the last couple of works that have come have done exceptionally well. And we've just witnessed this extraordinary moment in the uh, de Kooning market where – Things we didn't necessarily think would be highly prized are suddenly uh, quite valuable. And I guess the, this sort of body of work, the black uh, uh, paintings kind of fit into uh, to all that. Can you just give us a little, little bit of the, the catalog uh, uh, entry on it, Max?
2: From the late 40s virtually impossible to come by in private hands, the black and white paintings. He paid a shy $14 million for it when you were at Sotheby's back in 2002, you know, which at the time was a huge, huge price. massive price. It was a huge It was
0: unheard of. I was very
2: excited yeah. back then in 2002 <laughs> that someone paid $14 million for a black and white painting. So, yes. <laughs> and, and yeah, and look, as, you, as we said before, he bought it. He had sold his great black and white painting to David Geffen many years before and, and, and this was sort of you know scratching that itch. You know, year, year, years on, um, very difficult to find. There was a, a collage work which made over $30 million, which is more of a work on paper. Um, This is, this is a sub- more substantial oil um, uh, this season, so it's it's quite special in that. The estimate's 25, which we feel mm-hmm. is conservative, all things considered.
0: It's going to be a very interesting uh, play because what we're seeing, like the, the, the Kuning market is so interesting to, 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 to look at. Uh, um, because what we see most of the time is 70s the Kooning's. That's the, that's the ones we see every auction, and they have their prices, and some do better, some do worse. But there's a broad range of emotions uh, and values associated with it. But they're all like 20 million plus paintings. So a substantial painting uh, from the 40s to come up is very rare. Every 10 years, maybe there's a substantial painting that comes up. The black and whites of the Kooning have a special following because, like, of the six that are considered, like, fully executed, I think five are in museums or in museum-like collections. so there, there's a spirit, but it's also interesting to see because what you think when these paintings come only up once a generation, it also, there is no market, as mm-hmm. to say, because it's not like every May and November you can see, oh, I like this one better and 2000, that, that, that. so you you have to, and that's the exciting part about getting a collection like the Newhouse collection, also other collections, Is like to tell the story and narrate, like, look, it's not only 70s, the Koonings that exist. There's actually a much broader field and it comes from something. And here is the narration because there is. A collector that understood abstraction really well, in my opinion. And, 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 you know, and I have to say it influenced me. I remember doing these appraisals as a, it's like starting as an intern and going to this appraisal and, and having a much better understanding following the collection of Cy
1: Newhouse. Look, I, the, the de Kooning market itself is so interesting because the apex of it, the works from the 50s, are m- mostly in museums and the few that are in private hands have uh, uh, traded for ungodly numbers. And 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 we're trading that way 10, 15 years ago in private uh, uh, sales. So it's a bit like the Pollock market for drip paintings. They're just There aren't very many around and when they are, there's no need to auction them because people will buy them at the number uh, uh, requested. And then we had this... You know, he's got an interesting uh, uh, life as an artist that there's this re- renaissance of creativity in the 70s and those works have been taking off for the last sort of 10 or 15 uh, uh, years and uh, uh, increasing in value to substantial numbers in part because that was the only thing publicly available, but also they're their great paintings. It's very interesting to suddenly see working backwards to this, you know these little places like the collage, which was just, it's just a, 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 an odd work that slips through the cracks. And when it comes up in a, a collection, you know, it's really not an opportunity for uh, people to sort of say, well, maybe next time it's, it's you either do it or you don't do
0: it. There is, yeah. If you know, there is no, if you know, you know, and if you know, there is no next time. And it's very interesting from a development, um, it's like, and please don't misunderstand me. I love de Kooning in the seventies. I think he did some amazing paintings but it's very interesting again following my 20 years uh my 20 years 20 plus years now in this in the in in, in this job or related jobs is it's interesting because I remember the moment where the first 70s de Kooning made first $7 million at auction and then $14 million at auction, 2006, 2007, something like that. And it was unheard of because like, why would a 70s de Kooning make, make those prices? Um, then there was also an outrageous price for an 80s de Kooning even. So, uh, but we haven't seen much other than last season at Sotheby's. Like I have to say, like there, there, there is not much of this early period of the cooning out there. There was one example we had from Ebsworth. We had a woman, um, which was one of six women, but the only woman you can have. So uh, that made roughly 70 million dollars, but that also people didn't really know what to, what to pay for it because again, everyone is so honed in. Like, the market creates itself, like it it, it, it it the proof's in the pudding, kind yeah, of like yeah. the 70s, the Kooning developed a price level because the market develops this price level. If there's no comps, if there's no intel, like what are we going to do? Uh, yeah. Let's look at art.
1: We, we, we don't call it price discovery for nothing. I mean, it's literally the purpose of the market is like, I don't know what this is worth. Let's see what that guy thinks it's worth. Maybe she thinks it's worth more. I mean, I think that was the... Um, there was that one seventies work that sold sometime around like 2010 or. Uh, or 11 and then resold 60 million dollars that was a kind of wake up call uh, uh, about those works so almost like, like we're sort of at reaching the end of when you can do that and the estate was very smart to sort of take some works from that period and do well with them they also did well with a very I think one of the latest uh, 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 80s works ever sold um, you know did qu- quite well but not past you know basically what the asking price wa- was because oh. you know, they were, everything was already full uh, value that way. the The same isn't true with the bon, uh, Bontecu mar- market, though. I mean, it's sort of like we're still trying to feel our way in the dark and see what. I think up.
2: it is the same. I mean, they're they're just they're so few and far between, right? There's the we sold the one from Abrams two years ago for years nine, ago. you know, nine just over nine million dollars, and there's been nothing since. I mean, if you if you look back, the, the, the next highest price is one point eight. I think mm-hmm. there's a, there's a huge. Delta there, and as I say, this one made four hundred fifty thousand dollars twenty years ago. There's been maybe five or six good ones in twenty years.
1: So, what's this one estimated at? Three to five million. So uh, that's less than halfway between one point eight and nine. So we're trying to balance, you know, like
0: we started. (laughs) (laughs) This, 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 you know, the Bontecu price for the Abrams bond was. Was truly also a price. I mean, that's, that's, that, let's be serious about it. Was a price discovery for us also. Like, it came in and we all stood in front of it and it's like, wow, this is intense. This is a real work of art. I had no idea what it was worth. Um, and, uh, we all felt like three, four million dollars for Bontecue that would triple her price, like great, but that it goes so high. And then, but then you start realizing. So when, when 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 my colleagues came to me and said like you know this guy and she's looking at this and these were all names that I know that I've heard of before and I was like okay if they're looking I'm going to look now <laughs> <laughs> and uh, started looking and say so like well if they all want one like can we get 5 I was like no we can't get 5 of them because they don't exist and this is the this is the thing we, after the big pontiac price we've been all looking for pontiacs that are
1: that's your job <laughs>
0: And we weren't the only ones. (laughs) Um, But there aren't any, and that's what Max says, and the rarity of these things is just very difficult. You do rely, and that goes back to also the first conversation, look, we rely also that we have many times we are the ones that you come to and we, we sell you something, we try to educate you depending on like how much you want us to be engaged. We try to stay with collectors for a generation or for a lifetime if we can and develop with them. But there's also every every collector develops a different passion and a different knowledge, and sometimes that's very deep and very good. And like there's so many times that I've learned from the people that I'm selling to. Like I learned a lot about Ponticu from the people that really knew how to talk about Ponticu, and I think it's totally fair because I know more now and you know more now, and that's that's
1: wonderful because it's like well, it's, share some of that with us. So who who is chasing after these? Is it is it a people who own work from that period? Is it people you know? There's a a passion for getting more women uh, artists work into collections that's a great th- thing and that's a perfectly legitimate reason for people to be wanting a bontacue. but i can see several other reasons but her her work is so hard to describe you know is it painting is it sculpture is it something else i think the the abrams one is that the one where the kids in the family used to like hide things in the in pockets in the Probably. apocrypha <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
2: i look i i think it depends i mean just from 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 the people, the handful of people I spoke to about the other one, just the sense of craft, which, as you say, is it a painting, is it a sculpture? There are not many artists of the of that, you know, that sort of mid-century period or otherwise who were who doing something something so so where the craft is so unmistakable and so remarkable. I think that that for me is what's different about her from other sculptors. Or,
1: but if I like own some Ruth Asawa's, do I also desperately want to? Uh, Lee Bontique or is it kind of maybe one or the other and it fits into uh, a collection where I've got works from the the 60s and 70s
0: I think you are I mean look obviously Marion you have you have a valid point and like I think a lot of a lot of collectors are playing catch up with the female artists of the generation yeah. that they're collecting 100% so I do think that there are collectors out there and I don't think this is lame I think this is actually cool and say and focus on this and I'm going to focus on this because I focus on this experience expression and, you know, um, that, that's just what it is, but, um, but on the other hand, you had collectors and that was the one, the part that surprised me because the, the, the female angle very important, but an easy angle to play because it's very clear. It's like, mm-hmm. look, you, you look at your collection, you have 20 dudes. Uh, how about a woman? Um, so, um, but what I was excited to see is like to see very serious collectors that are more in the you know, in the in the in the real classic post war period at the highest level looking at this. To round out the collection, because as much as there is a relationship to Asawa in a funny way from a form form uh, okay. variable, um, I do think that her take compared to I don't know abstract expressionism, take a Franz Klein is very different, and I think that's exciting because put her put one of her great objects next to a Franz Klein painting, what happens then? Then you have a real wide band of what. The post war art could do and at which hole it could crawl into, basically. And then you put some Agnes Martin's lines. Like, there's so many expressions. And to discover these expressions, I think that's what a lot, because some of these collectors did also knew about Bontacue, but didn't really know it. Like, you have to see a masterpiece to actually get it. Like, it was a wild thing. The Twombly that was hanging next to it had a hard time next to Bontacue. It really did. And Twombly is a gorilla. <laughs> I don't think we need to debate Twombly, but you know, it shows you that it could coexist.
1: Well, well your point is also what, Twombly's wall power. Again, its strangeness, its size, its colors—whatever it, it, it is—usually is a lot to keep up with. And and I think you are right. You know, most bountecues are so striking; they, they don't look like anything else. You see them a mile away. I, I guess I, I, I guess we don't know what Sai saw in it uh, uh, at all. Do, do we? Just it, it happens to be something he bought, and, and... He, I
0: think he saw it just also like as another experience. From the time that he loved and it's a broad range because he loved the 20th century like he did He didn't he didn't but he was not afraid of scope if I think about it He was not afraid of sculpture. He was not afraid of painting. He was not afraid of drawing He was not afraid of of of, uh, like of mixed media Rauschenberg stuff like that That's also like you have to be daring and I think Bonte is gonna dare you as a collector to the max because it looks dirty and old and grimy. And you know what stuff that people put inside legitimately or, <laughs> or unlegitimately. It's, so there's, there's a lot of like real life history to it. And I think it comes together. And I think that's what he saw. It like, it was a moment. He actually has another one. He had a smaller one. He had two Bonticus. All
1: right, good. So, so. so the underbidder, you've got something to, to <laughs> go to them with. So before we get to the uh, bacon, um, there's a there's a gorky work on paper that sort of somewhat fits in that sort of the theme of what we were talking about earlier with um uh de Kooning especially he, they were such close friends uh in the thirties and forties uh, can you just describe that uh, work a little bit
2: yeah so it's a, it's a work on paper from i think nineteen forty four you have that um uh it's 19 by 24 inches. It's a landscape. Uh, Gorky, of course, is is de Kooning, One of de Kooning's teachers. Um, this is this is you know towards the end of Gorky's life. Uh, it's relatively f- fully realized work for a for a important painting, which I think is North Carolina. Um, and yeah, as you say, I mean, Alex is saying you know, between 1940 and let's say early 1970s in particular is where it's certainly this selection falls. But I mean, obviously it's a hundred years, but that's really where the focus is from the beginning of Avex through the beginning of pop.
1: Right. And then you've got this great Bacon self-portrait, which is, I don't know if they're actually paired, but there there were two works that are made around the same uh, time. One was bought a few years ago, um rumored to be by Damien Hirst for himself. Uh, and we have this one uh, that, you know, is just, it's not a very large uh, work. I can't remember, the Hirst might have been around $30 million or so, something. Uh, million. Uh, but it's not a very large work, which also makes the price kind of, a, but it's a, a, a compelling wa- one.
2: It, for me, and Alex, I'm sure you're, you're far more eloquent about this night. But for me, it has everything you could ever want in a bacon. I mean, the, the bacon had some peculiar working habits. He didn't do drawings are not it's really not preparatory sketches, as we know. All of his paintings, with few exceptions, are vertical. And all of the figures, even in the, the massive paintings, are roughly the same size. They're so roughly three-quarters of, 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 of of human scale. So in this, you have the three-quarter size head. It's the most beautiful self-portrait, it's not a painting where beauty necessarily comes into it all the time, but it is from a, just from a purely the application of paint, it's one of the most beautiful self-portraits of the 20th century, I think. And uh, you know, if you look at some of the larger paintings, you know, the criticism fairly or unfairly has been that the, 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 let's say, the, the landscaper behind the figures. There's some extraneous extraneous elements. They weren't always fully resolved. This is just the essential elements. And if you look at the face, not only do you get him in his inner morse, core, you get this sort of, you get both sides of him. It's sort of two sides of, it's like this very Manichaean two sides of his face sort of stitched together. The left side is sort of looking within at a sort of more placid side. The right side is more fully realized. And if you look at even at the base of the face, so these two circular white elements, which don't really correspond to anything, which is almost like buttons sort of fastening the two halves together. It's just, it's a fascinating portrait. And it's also, it's a very personal one, which, you know, he gave to his, you know, Valerie Best and this woman who, who basically made his life possible, maybe saved it a couple of times and I'm sure pulled it, pulled him out of the gutter, you know, after a night out um, more than once and and she kept it to the end of her life, even though it was by far the most valuable thing she owned. You know, she could have sold it and bought a house in, you know, Mallorca, but kept it until she died. And and that's where I bought it in two thousand six. I just it, it has everything For me, that you could want from this sort of painting. I completely agree with you. I mean, this is this is this is
0: this is the work because it is. I do think. I mean, I personally think that self-portraits of great artists have just because we talked about the reflection. I think that plays along with that because when the artist sees himself or herself for the first time, truly, I think that means something. Uh, as a Waholian thinker, I do believe in this, in this quality. Um, and I think also, you know, what comes together with this bacon, which is unusual, uh, people love the intensity of ba- bacon or people can't deal with it and can't cope with it. Some people can't deal with the figuration of bacon. Um, but uh, be as it may, it's like you have bacon coming out of the '50s in a in a in 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 a way that like we have never seen. By the times, the late '60s and the early '70s, which was which are always which were always considered the the, the, the time of the uh, Paris Show were considered like he was at his best. I think he was most confident, had the most energy. Like everything worked. These were, in my opinion, his 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 years with the consistency of qualities there. So that this came from this period, it also is very I find Bacon at this point, um Bacon after looking at Picasso, not casually but more deeply. And I think he is the one that followed Picasso the most about the complexities of movement while resting and the stagnant painting that is still moving. Uh, I think Picasso achieved it. I think Bacon is the only other one that really achieved it. And some of them are quirky. This one works. And just like a perfect, you know, marie Therese, like the, some of these portraits are not bigger than this. It's like sometimes it's not the scale, but the intensity you bring into it. You
1: know. This seems to be a real kind of less is more situation, I mean, especially since many of the studies are these triptychs. And, and weirdly this sole work has the intensity that that makes it you know kind of hard to turn away
2: well and the, and the actually the link to Picasso I mean bacon was also let's be honest he was a hit or miss colorist some of the colors are kind of garish and weird and don't really belong this is everything is just so perfectly calibrated and in fact I mean Picasso who is also a bit of a hit or miss colorist the 30s was was the time when he he mastered color at, you know just Matisse had. And of course the, the painting from the, the portrait from the 30s as well so, so nice I, I was just gonna
1: say then and, and you just perfectly led in to talk about, there are two Picassos, actually, the, the flamboyant one, the oh, your French is better than mine, I'm sure. Give us the title and the backstory. It's on the
2: L'Arlisienne, La- 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 oh, no, which is after the, the series of, of um, portraits that Van Gogh had painted, which Picasso looked at, which uh, Bacon looked at as well. Um, but in subtitles, the subject of the um, painting is the um, one-time model and, and very famous photographer, Lee Miller, um, who was married to Man Ray. Um, There's actually there's a nice personal link and we don't know why side bought the things he bought other than that They were of exceptional magical quality, but Lee Miller had, this, this is a semi-apocryphal, but a semi-true story. She was, when she was 19 years old and had just moved to New York and was this strikingly beautiful but slightly space cadet um, young woman, she was wandering into the middle of the street and she was pulled back by an elderly stranger who turned out to be this very well-dressed gent in his 50s and it turned out to be Condé Nast, who, you know, quotation marks, discovered her and she was on the cover of Vogue within a few months and became this very important figure in her life. And then, of course, she shot for Vogue later. She shot Picasso in his studio in the war. And he was very famous um pictures and, and of course, you know, sign new house the the you know his connection with Conde nast of course makes this who
1: who wouldn't want that as a memento right
2: um, and as you say there are two paintings there's this portrait from 1937 there are seven of these Lee Miller paintings this is the best of them this is the most complex it's the most richly worked um, the 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 layer of paint is such that he's actually scraped off part of it on the on the left side which is very unusual but you can see several under layers of paint it's almost like a Richter kind of Squeegee effect—it's really remarkable and unique um, for, for, for one of those. Um, uh, you know, for all of her beauty, Lee Miller uh, evidently at the time did not have the best teeth detail. It's just—it's a—it's a really exceptionally beautiful painting.
1: Nast confidential. Now we're learning the real secrets.
2: <laughs> um, uh, this is according to John Richardson. Um, but the the other painting is is um, is a cubist. It's just a masterpiece. It's from my.
1: Team. Well, well, and explain that to me. I mean, you've got this. Uh, Cubist painting that people would die for from this period. They're they're not terribly common on the market, but it is not the headline picture in in any of this. Is that because you figure when you put it up on the wall, everyone's going to see what it is, and you don't need to sort of uh, do that? I mean, I know you've been showing these works around the world. What's the reaction been to it?
2: That it's it's special and unlike anything we've had in many many years. I mean, this if if the ownership history sort of tells you everything you need to know about this painting. It's 1911, so it's it's really the, the first you know, juncture of of, of Cubism. Uh, it belonged to Picasso. He sold it to, to Alphonse Kahn, who was one of the great 20th century collectors. He owned the Seurat the Paul Allen sale. He owned the Gauguin the Paul Allen sale. He had one of the, these sort of collections that spanned 100 plus years. Um, it was taken away from him um, when the Germans came into power so it was it was confiscated ultimately restituted later but Picasso bought it back which is very unusual for him he bought it back and gave it to Dora Mar who kept it throughout her life and was ultimately restituted out of her estate sale which is where its bought it but Picasso was you know he was a sentimental character he kept lots of things but he was not he was not someone who was in the habit of paying for things that he'd painted in the past so it's quite it's quite an That's rare. Story. it's it very rare. rare it's extremely rare. very rare the selection is is not you know it's not 16 works picked at random the works have affinities with one another the bacon and the Picasso are, of course, of course, two great portraits from different junctures, but the, the, you know, the cubist Picasso has, has affinities with de the, the Kooning, with Orestes, which is a sort of a word code in and of itself. And it's called Orestes. You see this sort of O-R-E. You're trying to work it out for yourself, but don't quite get there. And then, of course, with the Johnses. I mean, Johns, Johns is the cubist of the latter part of the 20th century. Absolutely. Right?
1: And we've just had this massive dual show of John's, uh, in Philadelphia and at the Whitney. And there's generally not a ton of, uh, high quality John's work, uh, on the market. And one presumes Cy had these three works and, and a few others. He famously sold, bought False Start, which was, uh, then sold on. So, I mean, he's seen some of the best, uh, works by John's. Um, let's not uh, skip over the Freud. Uh, he's got, uh, there's a, uh, after Chardin, uh, a painting. Uh, again, does that fit in because we've just seen, you know, these, these great Freuds uh, come on the mar- market and do so well with um, uh, Paul Allen? Or is it just, you know?
0: I think, you know, um uh, Cy loved Freud. He had quite a bit of Freud. You can do some research and find some bigger paintings, a more recognizable one that he owned. He owned for me, the greatest Freud painting ever. So he had an affinity to Freud. Then there was the connection to Bacon. So the, the the Freud, it's a little bit of a strange series for Freud that very few people know. You have to be a Freudian to basically know where it comes and fits. But I think it gives also the, the impression of like this selection is showing a a, like a breadth of the collection, but it's also showing communication between those pieces. And I think that Bacon and the Freud, that's why we said, you know, when, when we talked, because we talked about the selection together, obviously it comes from the Newhouse family um, uh, and, and they pre-selected it. But you, you built, when Tobias came to us and Max and I were the ones that were sitting with him and, and, and talking about the selection that he brought. And like, we were trying to make those connections all together. So this is the connection that we made Freud is a nice rounding out because it's very Psy and it obviously has a relationship to Bacon. It's probably the most figurative work in the entire Mm. collection or in the entire selection of the collection because Psy was very much, I feel, between where he ended up was very much, he loved abstraction, but he could deal with figuration, abstraction. And, I'm um, keep looking at this press release because it's so interesting to look Bacon Picasso de Kooning and Mark making. I mean, mm-hmm. the similarities that I see in those, it, it, like, there's a vision there, which is beautiful when you, as someone who sells paintings for a living, suddenly sees, wow, like something's coming up. That was the beauty of of Paul Allen yeah. because nobody knew like you know we we also walked in there and were like wow and su- slowly seeing the connections that maybe Paul Allen didn't do and uh, you know th- that's wonderful it's an
1: experience for us you're you're making a remix you're you're taking taking something that was personal to so- someone for reasons you can't possibly kn- know and then doing your own Uh, vibe on it, right? I mean, uh, uh, that's part of what you have to do to sell it. You need to present the works in an interesting way to it's not just like, you know, I think this is the hard part to, uh, for people to realize. is like you you don't get to dictate who buys what. And you rely on a lot of circumstance. And part of, you know, one of the things Chrissy's does exceptionally well is the set dressing and the way you create these environments. But that's I mean, the remix is part of that opportunity. Get someone to come in for one thing and turn around and possibly fall in love with another.
0: No, and, and, and I mean, thank you. We're proud of that. and But it's really like... And again, this, these are just words, but um, it's not just a gadget, the whole thing. It's its also for us to get closer to the, and uh, for us to experience it. So like our our thinking about exhibition differently than maybe other commercial institutions is something because it gives us time to fall in love with the works. Because I wouldn't sell as well if I wouldn't like it.
1: Well, that's also the benefit of doing the job is getting to spend time with these uh, uh, pictures uh, uh, and having that culmination of being able to present it uh, as some sort of a unit with uh, a story.
0: Yeah. The one thing maybe still relevant to say is that also, you know, and that's, you're sitting here with Max and I, so Max obviously coming from the first half of the century, I'm coming from the second half of the century, um, but the collectors don't think this way. That Hence this whole endeavor of 2021, but it's basically just a, a sign that, you know, if our collectors don't think that way, we don't think that way. And you can't think of, that's why I am set the Picasso reference to Bacon, can't think of Bacon without ever seeing Picasso. It's impossible. Yeah. And the collectors don't think that way. It was like, oh, it's, it's in a different category. I'm not buying it. No, uh, it's, it's so... It opens up and it opens the dialogue. So what I love to see is that, you know, the teams are merging together and suddenly there's a completely new understanding. And I think it has a lot to do that, you know, we do more collections now and our collections are 20th century collections because we look at it more holistically and we want to look at it more holistically.
1: Perfect. That's the final word. Thank you, gentlemen.
0: Always a pleasure, man. Thank you. you.
1: Thank you for joining us at the Intelligence podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Intelligence podcast. We're looking forward to it.